Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Wednesday's Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft, and I'm here with Sarah Masaryk as usual, and we have a guest today, and Sarah is going to tell us who that is. Diane, I'm very excited and pleased to welcome my dear friend, Father Jordan Meek of St. Norbert Abbey. Father is in the Tuesday Night Classics Club, but Father and I have also had some other book clubs in common. And today we're going to talk about Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, which we have read together now several times because we read it with our Tuesday Night Book Club. We read it with a, as part of a senior theology class, and we read it with some young adult friends that we have. So, Father, thank you so very much for joining us today. Yeah, you're welcome. Good to good to be here and talk about uh, one of my favorite books that really got me into reading. So, Father, this is one of your all-time favorite books, right? Yeah, it's definitely at the top of the list for sure. So when did you first read this book? This book was an assigned book in my senior AP English class. And I had a lot of friends who were a grade above me. And I had a girlfriend who was in that class. You know, I was thinking like young Frankenstein. So I'm like, you're reading about this monster, like a <laughs> comedy kind of thing. She's like, no, it's, you know, less about the monster and more about this Dr. Victor. And I'm like, oh, okay, whatever sounds weird. And then when I had to take the class, I was like, whoa, this is amazing. Like, this is an amazing book. Because <laughs> I also went to public school, but being nurtured in the Catholic faith, I was seeing, making a lot of connections uh, to the creation story, man's free will and our ability to follow uh, God, or in some cases not. Uh, So I loved just playing with those ideas in my head uh, as a senior in high school. I was going to say, you were pretty young to be having some pretty mature thoughts about this book. Yeah, well, it doesn't mean that the thoughts were actually that good. The questions were good, but. Well, that actually leads really nicely into the fact that you and I did a um, interesting project. You had a senior student at the high school where you teach and where my husband is an associate principal. You had a senior student who needed a religion class that, and none of them fit into his schedule. And so you agreed to take him on as an independent student. And when you were setting the curriculum, you and I were talking about good books and what would be the kinds of things that we would want young people of faith to have inside of them before they go out into the world. Were you thinking about Frankenstein for that class right away? Was that always on your radar? Yeah, I don't know. For that class in particular, if that is what I wanted to do, to have that freedom for that class with an independent study, to be able to bridge kind of the secular with the sacred or to make connections, right? That God is at work, not just in sacred scripture or in the book of nature in creation, but that God's fingers are continually at play, inspiring and people who may not even be people of faith right, are wrestling with the same questions that we do as Christians of trying to make sense of of why we're here and what is our ultimate goal. And so I think, right, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is a great way to think about these questions of 
what is humanity? What is our purpose? What does it mean to be uh, co-creators with God, to be in the Imago Dei? And all those theological concepts can be flushed out in, in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And that really surprised me because I, as an English and religion and philosophy triple major at Hillsdale College, somehow managed to escape reading Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And I even went to Oxford and read the romantics there. And again, I, I neatly sidestepped this one because I always thought it's a Gothic horror novel. That's what I'd always heard. And so I had read Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey, and that was as dark and creepy as I wanted to go. And so I always just thought that this was just a, a horror novel that we could just completely ignore. And when we were getting to know each other, and you and I were reading some Flannery O'Connor together and some other things, and I was really impressed with how you viewed literature. I was shocked when you said that this was one of your favorite novels. Mm-hmm. Joseph Pierce has a book called Literature, What Every Catholic Should Know, and he breaks down what he considers to be some of the most important texts in the Western canon that are good for Christians to know and understand. And he goes into depth on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and his, so his uh, recommendation that I read it and your love of it made me really curious. So I read the thing and was shocked by how much I loved it. So when you were getting ready to prepare this class for your senior student, I said, I want in, I want to read with you. (laughs) I want to do this too. (laughs) Well, I think that's interesting that you loved it in high school because my husband did too. And for years, he kept saying, you've got to read Frankenstein. It's just the most amazing book. And I'd be going, okay, whatever. I saw the movie when I was a kid. Um, (laughs) So, you know, and we were really into those old horror movies, which that one's really just silly after you read the book, but that's what I'm picturing. And also the fact that he's not a huge classics reader. And I thought, yeah, so a book that you liked when you were 17, I don't, I don't know. I'm just not going to put much time into that, but I kept trying it and it took me 30 years before I finally got to it because I, I had tried it. I think it was the third or fourth try when I finally just said, I'm going to do this because my sister wanted to read Frankenstein and Dracula. And I said, okay, I'll do it with you. So when I sat down and said, you will get through this, that's when I finally did. Because I would get started and I'd go, I just, I hate these first person stories where we just get bogged down in every little thing they're thinking and feeling. And that turns me off right at the beginning. And I just couldn't do it. So I finally got through it. And while I would not say that it's one of my favorite books, I did end up going, oh, I see. You see. Mm-hmm. Diane, what would you say was your takeaway as being sort of the central theme of Frankenstein? Oh, just one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you were, if you were going to describe Frankenstein, how would you describe it? I think that she's talking about man trying to be God. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think it's interesting that this person who wasn't a Christian comes to the conclusion that that's a really bad idea. When you say this young person who wasn't a Christian, do you mean Mary Shelley or do you mean Dr. Yes. Frankenstein? Because, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The author. Yes. <laughs> well, it could go either way. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> they both knew better or should have. 
so father, you loved it because it posed these questions for you. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think Diane says it so well of man trying to play God. And so you see theme of pride of the fall of our first parents uh, in the doctor and in the captain, that these are men of ambition. And so they'll go, uh, go to the greatest lengths to, to conquer and risk Mm -hmm. everything in the process. Isn't that interesting? You say risk everything in the process. And I I do think that that's accurate, but to risk so much in the pursuit of something that has no eternal benefit, it's chilling. And yet it is clearly the driving force in here. And I think that was one of the things that kind of, uh, that Pierce teases out in his book. He says, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is a work, which for all of its flaws continues to grip the popular imagination. Is the secret of Frankenstein's success, it's grappling with perennial questions about the relationship between scientific knowledge and moral philosophy. And I thought for me, that was interesting to consider before I read the text, that this is really a book about that balance between faith and reason and where science fits into man's um what it, man's pursuit of knowledge, how science fits into that and having a rightly ordered understanding of that. And that this book really grapples with that. Mm-hmm. I found that very, a very interesting lens through which to read the text. So then when I was reading it, that's what I kept thinking about was what is the God in this book? Because it's not the God, our God, God, the father, it's something else. There is a, but there is a small G God that these men are pursuing. Even the monster himself is pursuing. But I don't think it's science. I think it's the power involved in being able to conquer the science. What I'm thinking about with Frankenstein is that he seems to be willing to risk everything and everybody besides himself because he just leaves, you know, bodies behind him as he goes. Yeah. But um, he's pretty selfish, prideful. He's yes. I mean, exceedingly prideful after all the destruction that's been wrought to still drag his wife into it was Mm -hmm. pretty unsettling, I think. Uh And then, Oh, oops, she's dead. When we discussed this with the senior student that father had, that was one of the things we talked about was the pride and the egotism of the scientist who thinks that they have the right to control and manipulate reality without thinking through the consequences of that. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the things that we really wanted to, that, that made it a good choice for a senior theology class was Mm -hmm. when we think of all of the bioengineering that's happening today, or all of the different ways in which science is being used to control or manipulate mankind, it, you realize that science without ethics is, it's a very, very evil thing. And we're not as a culture doing a very good job of preparing our, our young people to have strong moral ethics inside of the field of science. That goes back to the Tower of Babel, where God came down and said, if we don't do something, they'll be able to do anything they want to accomplish. And we never have caught on that just because we can doesn't mean we should. 
Yeah. And the control of science, the control of our own lives. I was thinking about something that you said, Sarah, a long time ago of even right in our world, we try to plan our families now because we have the science that makes it able to do so that we no longer view this as a gift from God or trusting God. But you can see throughout the theme, like throughout the, the book of, right, you're no longer worshiping the, the author of the universe, but you're trying con- to control and manipulate the universe in, in, in itself. Right. The very power to create life, we think it belongs to us, but whether, whether we're talking about the ethics of having a child created in a lab and implanted into a person, or we talk about not having the requisite partner that you need in order to have a child. So you go and purchase the other half that you need. Or we're talking about once a child is already conceived, what is the, what is the right thing to do for its survival? These are things that we now think we get to govern. And yet every single life, no matter how it's created, is created by God himself. And we tend to forget that. There's a, there's a joke that I always tell very badly, but I really like it for just what it says so succinctly that the scientists are sitting around trying to create life. Uh, and, you know, they're thinking, well, if God could create man from dirt, we can do the same thing. And so they have a contest with God. And so it's kind of like ready, set, go. And God says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You have to start, you have to make your own dirt. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what is the Latin for that? Ex milio? Or- I always forget the Latin out of nothing. Oh, ex nihilo. Ex nihilo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and what you find even then when man tries on his own to create, create his own family, to create his own life, he becomes very bitter. And you see yeah. this um, then with the doctor, with Frankenstein himself and his monster, all right. He doesn't love his creation. He actually hates it and mm-hmm. um, is very selfish. And we know that God, when he creates, it's out of love and self-giving. And so you see, right, what man does when he's in control is um, sinful and, and warped. But the nature of God, right, is to love and give of self. And so we see um, that is not in Frankenstein at all. Right. That's a great point, Father. Part of that is the responsibility of having to care for your creation after you've got it. And I think that's some of what the problem was with Dr. Frankenstein is that he, th- this thing was a lot of trouble now, and that wasn't what he was counting on. He wanted the power and he wanted the glory, but not the day-to-day problems of figuring out what to do with this thing. So let's go back to the monster this is where it got very interesting. So father and I did this with our, with his student. And then father, were, were we doing Tuesday? Were we, were we doing it at Tuesday night at the same time? Or was it later on? Like maybe a couple months later? I think it was a couple months later. And then we did it in the fall with the girls even further yeah. removed. Right. Okay. So basically we did it in, in like January or February with our, with your student and then we did it in like maybe late spring with our book club. And then we did it in the fall, I think, with um, these young ladies we had been reading Flannery O'Connor with. 
And I remember that when we read it, by the way, Tim, who our listeners will know from some of the other episodes, Tim said, this should be required reading for every human being on ethics. Mm -hmm. Because when we think of the monster who has been created again, without its own will, right? It, it, it did not will itself into creation. Dr. Frankenstein created him and then abandoned him. And he was shown no mercy and anybody he appealed to also rejected him and showed him no mercy. So who is at fault for the evil that he does himself? Who's never known love. Or his creator who did not, who did not love him and did not care for him. That gets very messy, especially <laughs> when we're talking of society today um, that says, right, I, I can't help it. I was born this way or it's right. Society's fault. Uh, there's no personal ownership. And, you know, the, the monster did know love or friendship to some extent with a blind man. Right. It wasn't until right the people that could see the physical hideousness that the hideousness of the human soul came out who who drives away this creature. I mean, it becomes incredibly difficult because the monster still has a choice. He still has will, despite the world, the brokenness, the sinfulness, the tragedy that is the world, there's still individual choice. And his choices were highly strategic. He did not kill for the joy of killing anybody. He was killing with the expressed intent of causing pain and destruction in the life of Dr. Frankenstein, which I think our Tuesday night group came to the conclusion that that indicated at a minimum, he was complicit in his evil because he was very intentional about it. It was not that he killed accidentally or killed out of a raging fit. He was methodical. He was thoughtful. He knew he was choosing wrong. He admitted in advance he was choosing wrong. He warned Dr. Frankenstein, this is what I will do, knowing it will inflict maximum amount of pain. And already he had already decided, but it will be your fault, not mine. Right. Mm -hmm no sense of personal responsibility. It's a little bit of a different question than if you're thinking about like humans and, and God creating humans who aren't happy with what they are because the monster's creator was not perfect, was not loving. And so even if the monster had gone to him and, and wanted to be, you know, Oh, just tell me what to do and, and I'll do it. And, and I love you and I want to be obedient it still would have come out badly because that kind of um, worship is bad for a human. Well, and it's compounded, Diane, by the fact that the monster was not created out of good parts, but dead parts, leftover mm -hmm. parts. Mm -hmm. Right. When we think about how God created Eve, he created her out of Adam's rib. And when he created Adam, he created Adam out of that, which he first created in with loving creation, with loving creativity. So the parts that went into the unfallen Adam and the unfallen Eve were pure and perfect through their own fallenness. 
they become degraded. So therefore Dr. Frankenstein is fallen. He is degraded. He is an imperfect creature who then creates out of corpses and corruption, corruption. So we have an imperfect creator with bad parts. How could the monster have had (laughs) any other path? But so there again, is the monster really to blame? Right. It makes it very tempting to sympathize with him. And that was the point on Tuesday nights. We said the monster is sympathetic, but he is not without guilt. Right. And I think in today's culture, we do so much. Oh, we're sympathetic to the cause. Therefore, we're going to overlook the sin. Yeah, you're excused. Mm -hmm. So, but it was interesting because we read this on Tuesday night with a group of adults who had a reaction similar to yours, Diane. It might not have been their favorite book, but everybody understood that it had beauty, that it was relevant, that it was good for us. It was good, true, and beautiful, even if it wasn't necessarily our favorite book of all time. I personally loved it. Father obviously loved it. Some people felt differently. Nobody hated it. Everybody thought it was time well spent. But that was not the case with the teenagers. <laughs> yeah, they just they just don't know what what good is. <laughs> now, was it girls and boys equally not liking it? Yes. Wouldn't you say, Father? Yeah, but I think I think the boys were more understanding uh, or yeah. open. The girls have stronger opinions too. These <laughs> these girls these, in particular. Yeah, that's not, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> we we thought it was going to be really a lot of fun to read Frankenstein with these particular girls because they are exceptionally bright, exceptionally well read. They're deeply uh, theological in their mindset. We thought, oh yeah, they're going to see all the stuff we see, and they were like. It's superficial and pathetic. (laughs) Where are the cookies? Yeah. And one of them was like, so I read the first chapter, hated it, decided I would just read the whole thing in one sitting and then never have to read it again. (laughs) Well, this conversation's going to go well. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I couldn't believe it. They have flaws as well. These, these perfect girls (laughs) have, uh, That was the most sane response, I think, because (laughs) the book is marvelous. And we were driving ourselves crazy thinking, why did they dislike this book so much? Because these are very, very intelligent, mature young women. So we found ourselves sort of kicking it back and forth between us. Like, these are not the people who we would have expected would have rejected it for superficial reasons. What is it? about this text that was just a failure of connection for them. I was just wondering if it's because like Jordan loved it, Ken loved it when they were young and I didn't even want to finish it the first couple of times. Is it because girls read it going, this is stupid. Why would you do that? And boys read it going, I can totally see myself going that direction with something, even if it's not that particular thing, because men are built to conquer mm-hmm. and women are built to nurture. And so it's because it's not our temptation, it's harder to understand and see the relevance of even going into this. I think that for women, 
we who are designed to, as you say, nurture, but more importantly, to grow a baby inside of us, we understand what creation intuitively, we understand how creation works in sort of an intrinsic way, in a way that's deeply encoded inside of our DNA. Even before we have had children, we understand the creative process of growing a baby. But I think that once you've had children, you kind of understand the messiness of it too. I think maybe for men, yeah, it's different because they know they're never going to grow a baby. Maybe it's a different kind of creating. What do you think, Father? No, that's a that's a good point. That yeah, it, it is very much in in man's DNA to to strive to work to have that goal and and to conquer. Right, go go out into the world and create. I think this is where even Saint Joseph right, is the model for workers, a man who worked with his hands, um, right, to be able to create, construct, build, aspire. Um, that, yeah, I think, I think it very much goes with uh, the masculine identity. Mm-hmm. I think of the two girls, one of them said that she could not handle Mary Shelley that she thought that Mary Shelley was insipid and making women look silly. And I, I still, I think I would have agreed with her when I was her age, but yet I can't put my finger on why, but I think that the girls felt betrayed by Mary Shelley thinking that Mary Shelley just did not write well enough for some reason that, that they felt that the writing itself was superficial, silly, I think of Gilbert Blythe telling Anne to stop writing these long sentences full of mumbo jumbo. That was the girl's criticism of Mary Shelley is they thought she was overly romantic in her writing and that that did a disservice to women writers everywhere. That makes sense though, because I have read many books by men who have women heroines. They don't do great. A lot of times I'm going, yeah, no woman would have done that. But a woman trying to write a man main character is often way farther off and probably even farther off than we know, because we're going, oh, yeah, OK, I, that would be a, I would love that kind of man. And men are going, what? <laughs> no Who man would do-, would do that. Yeah, no man but, would act that way. <laughs> yeah. But I think women are worse at writing men characters than men are bad at writing women characters, Part probably partly because we can't cut off that emotion he wouldn't have talked like that. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people back then did, and it wasn't just women writing like that. It was sort of a, ro- a romantic style. But I-, I can see that. But I think part of Mary Shelley's writing style is something that you brought out in book club, Sarah, of you have to also understand Mary Shelley's personal history with her husband, Percy. And in a lot of ways, you pointed out that you see kind of Mary Shelley inserting herself and her experiences through this novel. Right. I had read in different sources a little bit, and they just started, these ideas started to get in my head and kind of come together that you know, Mary Shelley was grossly abused by her husband. She was the second wife and he was a really a pretty despicable human being. She considered herself to be the monster and that her husband was in fact, Dr. Frankenstein and that he was making her over into the 
monster he wanted her to be. And when he found her lacking, he abandoned her. And so she is feeling that she was not responsible then for the destruction that she would do because she felt abandoned by him when she was his creation. And that I think is supposed to help us have more sympathy for the author. But again, the girls are like, well, those are her issues. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's these right. are very strong-willed girls. <laughs> <laughs> Knowing that stuff makes for an interesting book club and it might make for an interesting rereading to go back and read it maybe through that lens. Um, but I honestly think even knowing that it does sort of break down when you're reading because you're thinking, well, how much of the monster is she in her mind? And so you can't take it too seriously and still be able to meet the characters on their own terms. But nonetheless, it's interesting to know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Father, the long passages and flowy words, as an adolescent male, those did not offend you at all or bore you? No, I, I didn't get bored because I'm like, what's going to happen next? Like <laughs> death and destruction. Uh, this is a, this is great. <laughs> we should we should just pause and let everybody know that when we when you join Tuesday Book Club, it was with Crime and Punishment, which opens with a double axe murder. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm in the right book club. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it's been it's all the Russians have been downhill since that. I'm like, I'm like what? we like, did go to Anna Karenina next. <laughs> you were not. And a I man. go, this is this is not good. This is not crime and punishment. <laughs> Even though there was death in there, people got hit by trains. And <laughs> I actually I had a high school teacher who made me read Anna Karenina. I think that's over the top. Yeah, I did no. it. And I liked it at the time. But I know I didn't have a clue what was going on. I've actually had young women approach me and ask me if they thought Anna Karenina would be good reading for them. And I said, for an unmarried woman, I, I don't think that you need Anna Karenina or Kristen Lovenstrader. Now I know a lot of, a lot of really well-read moms who are well-formed will disagree with me on that. Um, but it's my personal assessment that those books are better for married women. So just going to put that yeah. out there. Could you read them and get something out of them? Maybe. Mm -hmm. Do you need them? Probably no. not. Mm -mm. No. Uh, and that's another beautiful thing that I liked about Mary Shelley is it wasn't a thick book like Anna Karenina. I'm like, oh, just a little one. <laughs> just a teeny little baby novel. I'm like, I can, I can read that. <laughs> and now you've reread it how many times, Father? Uh, three, three, four, four, four times. Yeah. And you're Anna Karenina? <laughs> no. <laughs> No, but it does look nice on my bookshelf. <laughs> you know, in, in fairness, though, when, when Sarah did tell me that it's really a focus on Levin, and I reflect about him and issues he was wrestling with, with, I think, as we were probably seeing a rise in, in communism or, or communist mm -hmm. thought, I was like, yeah, you know, I can't appreciate that character. Anna, no. No. And this is why I like Flannery O'Connor so much is that I just, it's weird, but I love the darkness uh, because there's just that much more opportunity for redemption. Like my favorite movie is Gran Torino um, because you see this, this man that seems unredeemable is redeemed. Mm -hmm. I wish I could say, yes, still haven't seen it. 
I'm a bad friend. (laughs) I feel so. Well, once you read about it in a book. Then then I'll be good with it, right? (laughs) (laughs) You were saying, Father, that one of the things you love about Flannery and Gran Torino and Frankenstein is the darkness. And I loved this quote from Joseph Pierce in his book, uh, Literature. He says, the romanticism of the light epitomized by the works of Coleridge and Wordsworth is rooted in the humility that leads to wonder and ultimately to the contemplation of beauty as a manifestations of God's presence in creation. The romanticism of the dark, on the other hand, is rooted in the Byronic pride that seeks meaning egocentrically and introspectively as something subjective to the self and therefore ultimately self-obsessive and narcissistic. This being so, it is intriguing that the teenage bride of Percy Shelley should contrast the self-obsessed and Byronically brooding Frankenstein with the selfless Polarigian figure of Clerval, the former being the sick and deluded villain and the latter his healthy alter ego. And so what I, I think what Pierce is getting at here is that the character of Clerval is the romanticism of light versus Frankenstein, who is the epitome of the, of the romanticism of the dark. Hmm. And given that Mary Shelley was living with Percy Shelley and Lord Byron and all of their yuck, to, for her to still have been able to see and cling to the romanticism of the light I think that that's part of what makes this novel work so well is that in Clerval, we have a character worth following. Like you said about Levin in Anna Karenina, if you can just fix your mind on Clerval or fix your mind on Levin, you can get through the book a little bit better and wrestle a little bit more successfully with the dark. Yeah. I think that's one of the things I wish our teenage girls had been able to appreciate is that the romantic writers do divide into two camps or two categories, those which are ambassadors of light and those which are ambassadors of dark. Yeah, well, and we're encouraged to find the people of the light, I think, right? It's easy to fall into despair and hopelessness, but St. Mother Teresa always kind of points to, right? Find the people that are doing good, right? Find those bearers of the good news. I don't, don't just dwell in the, in the darkness. So if you teach a senior theology class again, do you think you would include this text? Yeah, I would. I, I think it's really a worthy piece to engage the mind and, and wrestle with these questions. It would be awesome, right? To be connecting all disciplines together, like to be able for English theology and all that to reconcile. And science as well, really. This is a science ethics book as much as it is a work of literature or theology. Right, right. I think that your lack of success with reading it with your high school girls is one reason that it's so important to be careful about your choices with readers at that age, because you don't want them going through their lives now going, oh, I read that. I hated it. Yeah. And not ever going back. So sometimes it will haunt you and you'll go back later and check. And then other times it's just like, oh, no, did that. Somebody forced me to do it. And I'm not, I don't have to do that again. 
So I'm not saying that was a wrong choice. I'm just saying that sometimes it's disappointing to be the one who assigned that, you know, and you, oh, we're going to have such good discussion. And it's just flat, <laughs> hated it. So what do you think about this and such? Yeah. Well, I think that your point's a good one, Diane, because so often we see that teachers will only assign one novel or one style of novel. And then students begin to make blanket decisions about literature in general because of that one novel versus mm -hmm. offering a wide feast allows for like, these girls are extremely well-read and have read tons of goodness. These are the girls who can break down and chew on and spit out Flannery O'Connor. You know, they, right. they're capable readers and this one just missed the mark for them and that's okay. Um, but this one I think does have some pretty significant value and can be used for a lot of other people, but it will be interesting if you do do this again, father, to see what happens with teenage oh, girls. Yeah. Well, and I think it could leave a bad taste in the mouth, but also my experience of Anna Karenina, if you have instructors or discussion that right, the instructor is inspired by it, can at least leave a, a, a little bit in there uh, to which, oh, maybe I'll think about that. And 10 years from now, I'll come back to it because this person whom I trust, right? It's something they liked. Yes. After Frankenstein, we did Fulton Sheen's Life of Christ. Mm -hmm. That was a really good follow-up to Frankenstein because what we see in Frankenstein is light and dark playing out in the fiction. And what we saw in Life of Christ was a really, really robust contemplation of he who is God, who is goodness and truth, who comes into the world and battles sin quite, quite directly. Yeah. Christ is the new Adam, right? That through one man's sin, all of humanity is fallen, but through one man's sacrifice, all are saved. And so, yeah, the life of Christ also becomes, right? He shows, right? The perfection, the path of perfection uh, in which man is redeemed. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for spending part of your afternoon with us. It's been fun and I'm really enjoying the little bit of participation I get in your Tuesday night book clubs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Father. And we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Sounds great. Okay.